Chapter Five, Part One of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Queen Victoria by Giles Lytton Strachey. Chapter Five, Part One. Chapter Five, Lord Palmerston. One. In 1851 the Prince's fortunes reached their high-water mark. The success of the great exhibition enormously increased his reputation and seemed to assure him henceforward a leading place in the national life. But before the year was out, another triumph in a very different sphere of action was also his. This triumph, big with fateful consequences, was itself the outcome of a series of complicated circumstances which had been gathering to a climax for many years. The unpopularity of Albert in high society had not diminished with time. Aristocratic persons continued to regard him with disfavor, and he on his side withdrew further and further into a contemptuous reserve. For a moment, indeed, it appeared as if the dislike of the upper classes was about to be suddenly converted into cordiality, for they learnt with amazement that the prince, during a country visit, had ridden to hounds and acquitted himself remarkably well. They had always taken it for granted that his horsemanship was of some second-rate foreign quality, and here he was jumping five-barred gates and tearing after the fox as if he had been born and bred in Leicestershire they could hardly believe it. Was it possible that they had made a mistake, and that Albert was a good fellow after all? Had he wished to be thought so, he would certainly have seized this opportunity, purchased several hunters, and used them constantly. But he had no such desire. Hunting bored him, and made Victoria nervous. He continued as before to ride, as he himself put it, for exercise or convenience, not for amusement, and it was agreed that though the prince no doubt could keep in his saddle well enough, he was no sportsman. This was a serious matter. It was not merely that Albert was laughed at by fine ladies and sneered at by fine gentlemen. It was not merely that Victoria, who before her marriage had cut some figure in society, had under her husband's influence almost completely given it up. Since Charles the Second the sovereigns of England had, with a single exception, always been unfashionable, and the fact that the exception was George the Fourth seemed to give an added significance to the rule. What was grave was not the lack of fashion, but the lack of other and more important qualities. The hostility of the upper classes was symptomatic of an antagonism more profound than one of manners or even of tastes. The prince, in a word, was un-English. What that word precisely meant it was difficult to say, but the fact was patent to every eye. Lord Palmerston also was not fashionable. The great Whig aristocrats looked askance at him, and only tolerated him as an unpleasant necessity thrust upon them by fate. But Lord Palmerston was English through and through. There was something in him that expressed, with extraordinary vigor, the fundamental qualities of the English race, and he was the very antithesis of the prince. By a curious chance it so happened that this typical Englishman was brought into closer contact than any other of his countrymen with the alien from over the sea. 
It thus fell out that differences which, in more fortunate circumstances, might have been smoothed away and obliterated, became accentuated to the highest pitch. All the mysterious forces in Albert's soul leapt out to do battle with his adversary, and in the long and violent conflict that followed, it almost seemed as if he was struggling with England herself. Palmerston's whole life had been spent in the government of the country. At twenty-two he had been a minister. At twenty-five he had been offered the chancellorship of the exchequer, which, with that prudence which formed so unexpected a part of his character, he had declined to accept. His first spell of office had lasted uninterruptedly for twenty-one years. When Lord Grey came into power, he received the foreign secretaryship, a post which he continued to occupy, with two intervals, for another twenty-one years. Throughout this period his reputation with the public had steadily grown, and when in 1846 he became foreign secretary for the third time, his position in the country was almost if not quite, on an equality with that of the Prime Minister, Lord John Russell. He was a tall, big man of sixty-two, with a jaunty air, a large face, dyed whiskers, and a long sardonic upper lip. His private life was far from respectable, but he had greatly strengthened his position in society by marrying, late in life, Lady Cooper, the sister of Lord Melbourne, and one of the most influential of the Whig hostesses. Powerful, experienced, and supremely self-confident, he naturally paid very little attention to Albert. Why should he? The prince was interested in foreign affairs? Very well, then, let the prince pay attention to him. To him, who had been a cabinet minister when Albert was in the cradle, who was the chosen leader of a great nation, and who had never failed in anything he had undertaken in the whole course of his life. Not that he wanted the prince's attention, far from it. So far as he could see, Albert was merely a young foreigner who suffered from having no vices, and whose only claim to distinction was that he had happened to marry the Queen of England. This estimate, as he found out to his cost, was a mistaken one. Albert was by no means insignificant, and behind Albert there was another figure by no means insignificant either. There was Stockmar. But Palmerston, busy with his plans, his ambitions, and the management of a great department, brushed all such considerations on one side. It was his favorite method of action. He lived by instinct, by a quick eye and a strong hand, a dexterous management of every crisis as it arose, a half-unconscious sense of the vital elements in a situation. He was very bold and nothing gave him more exhilaration than to steer the ship of state in a high wind, on a rough sea, with every stitch of canvas on her that she could carry. But there is a point beyond which boldness becomes rashness, a point perceptible only to intuition and not to reason, and beyond that point Palmerston never went. When he saw that the cast demanded it, he could go slow, very slow indeed. In fact, his whole career, so full of vigorous adventure, was nevertheless a masterly example of the proverb, Tout vient à point à qui s'est attendre. But when he decided to go quick, nobody went quicker. One day, returning from Osborne, he found that he had missed the train to London. He ordered a special 
but the station-master told him that to put a special train upon the line at that time of day would be dangerous, and he could not allow it. Palmerston insisted, declaring that he had important business in London which could not wait. The station-master, supported by all the officials, continued to demur. The company, he said, could not possibly take the responsibility. On my responsibility, then, said Palmerston, in his off-hand peremptory way, whereupon the station-master ordered up the train, and the foreign secretary reached London in time for his work, without an accident. The story is typical of the happy valiance with which he conducted both his own affairs and those of the nation. England, he used to say, is strong enough to brave consequences. Apparently, under Palmerston's guidance, she was. While the officials protested and shook in their shoes, he would wave them away with his airy, my responsibility, and carry the country swiftly along the line of his choice to a triumphant destination without an accident. His immense popularity was the result partly of his diplomatic successes, partly of his extraordinary personal affability, but chiefly of the genuine intensity with which he responded to the feelings and supported the interests of his countrymen. The public knew that it had in Lord Palmerston not only a high-mettled master, but also a devoted servant, that he was, in every sense of the word, a public man. When he was Prime Minister, he noticed that iron hurdles had been put up on the grass in the Green Park. He immediately wrote to the minister responsible, ordering in the severest language their instant removal, declaring that they were an intolerable nuisance, and that the purpose of the grass was to be walked upon freely and without restraint by the people, old and young, for whose enjoyment the parks are maintained. It was in this spirit that, as foreign secretary, he watched over the interests of Englishmen abroad. Nothing could be more agreeable for Englishmen but foreign governments were less pleased. They found Lord Palmerston interfering, exasperating, and alarming. In Paris, they spoke with bated breath of ce terrible milord Palmerston, and in Germany they made a little song about him. Hat der Teufel einen Sohn, so ist er sicher Palmerston. But their complaints, their threats, and their agitations were all in vain. Palmerston, with his upper lip sardonically curving, braved consequences and held on his course. The first diplomatic crisis which arose after his return to office, though the Prince and the Queen were closely concerned with it, passed off without serious disagreement between the Court and the Minister. For some years past, a curious problem had been perplexing the chanceries of Europe. Spain, ever since the time of Napoleon a prey to civil convulsions, had settled down for a short interval to a state of comparative quiet under the rule of Christina, the Queen Mother, and her daughter Isabella, the young Queen. In 1846 the question of Isabella's marriage, which had for long been the subject of diplomatic speculations, suddenly became acute. Various candidates for her hand were proposed. Among others, two cousins of her own, another Spanish prince, and Prince Leopold of Saxe-Coburg, a first cousin of Victoria's and Albert's. For different reasons, however, none of these young men seemed altogether satisfactory. Isabella was not yet sixteen. 
and it might have been supposed that her marriage could be put off for a few years more. But this was considered to be out of the question. Vous ne savez pas, said a high authority, ce que c'est que ces princesses espagnoles. Elles ont le diable au corps, et on a toujours dit que si nous ne nous rations pas, les retiers viendraient avant le mari. It might also have been supposed that the young queen's marriage was a matter to be settled by herself, her mother, and the Spanish government. But this again was far from being the case. It had become by one of those periodical reversions to the ways of the eighteenth century, which it is rumored are still not unknown in diplomacy, a question of dominating importance in the foreign policies both of France and England. For several years, Louis-Philippe and his Prime Minister Guizot had been privately maturing a very subtle plan. It was the object of the French king to repeat the glorious coup of Louis the Fourteenth and to abolish the Pyrenees by placing one of his grandsons on the throne of Spain. In order to bring this about, he did not venture to suggest that his younger son, the Duc de Montpensier, should marry Isabella, that would have been too obvious a move which would have raised immediate and insurmountable opposition. He therefore proposed that Isabella should marry her cousin, the Duke of Cadiz, while Montpensier married Isabella's younger sister, the Infanta Fernanda. And pray, what possible objection could there be to that? The wily old king whispered into the chaste ears of Guizot the key to the secret. He had good reason to believe that the Duke of Cadiz was incapable of having children, and therefore the offspring of Fernanda would inherit the Spanish crown. Guizot rubbed his hands and began at once to set the necessary springs in motion, but of course the whole scheme was very soon divulged and understood. The English government took an extremely serious view of the matter. The balance of power was clearly at stake, and the French intrigue must be frustrated at all hazards. A diplomatic struggle of great intensity followed, and it occasionally appeared that a second war of the Spanish succession was about to break out. This was avoided, but the consequences of this strange imbroglio were far-reaching and completely different from what any of the parties concerned could have guessed. In the course of the long and intricate negotiations, there was one point upon which Louis-Philippe laid a special stress, the candidature of Prince Leopold of Saxe-Coburg. The prospect of a marriage between a Coburg prince and the Queen of Spain was, he declared, at least as threatening to the balance of power in Europe as that of a marriage between the Duc de Montpensier and the Infanta. And, indeed, there was much to be said for this contention. The ruin which had fallen upon the house of Coburg during the Napoleonic Wars had apparently only served to multiply its vitality, for that princely family had by now extended itself over Europe in an extraordinary manner. King Leopold was firmly fixed in Belgium. His niece was Queen of England, one of his nephews was the husband of the Queen of England, and another the husband of the Queen of Portugal. Yet another was Duke of Württemberg. Where was this to end? There seemed to be a Coburg Trust ready to send out one of its members at any moment to fill up any vacant place among the ruling families of Europe. And even beyond Europe there were signs of this infection spreading. 
an American who had arrived in Brussels had assured King Leopold that there was a strong feeling in the United States in favor of monarchy instead of the misrule of mobs, and had suggested, to the delight of His Majesty, that some branch of the Coburg family might be available for the position. That danger might perhaps be remote, but the Spanish danger was close at hand, and if Prince Leopold were to marry Queen Isabella, the position of France would be one of humiliation if not of positive danger. Such were the asseverations of Louis-Philippe. The English government had no wish to support Prince Leopold, and though Albert and Victoria had some hankerings for the match, the wisdom of Stockmar had induced them to give up all thoughts of it. The way thus seemed open for a settlement. England would be reasonable about Leopold, if France would be reasonable about Montpensier. At the Chateau de the agreement was made in a series of conversations between the king and Guizot on the one side and the queen, the prince, and Lord Aberdeen on the other. Aberdeen, as foreign minister, declared that England would neither recognize nor support Prince Leopold as a candidate for the hand of the queen of Spain, while Louis-Philippe solemnly promised both to Aberdeen and to Victoria that the Duc de Montpensier should not marry the Infanta Fernanda until after the Queen was married and had issue. All went well, and the crisis seemed to be over, when the whole question was suddenly reopened by Palmerston, who had succeeded Aberdeen at the Foreign Office. In a dispatch to the English minister at Madrid, he mentioned, in a list of possible candidates for Queen Isabella's hand, Prince Leopold of Coburg, and at the same time he took occasion to denounce in violent language the tyranny and incompetence of the Spanish government. This dispatch, indiscreet in any case, was rendered infinitely more so by being communicated to Guizot. Louis-Philippe saw his opportunity and pounced on it though there was nothing in Palmerston's language to show that he either recognized or supported Prince Leopold, the king at once assumed that the English had broken their engagement, and that he was therefore free to do likewise. He then sent the dispatch to the Queen Mother, declared that the English were intriguing for the Coburg marriage, bade her mark the animosity of Palmerston against the Spanish government, and urge her to escape from her difficulties and ensure the friendship of France by marrying Isabella to the Duke of Cadiz and Fernanda to Montpensier. The Queen Mother, alarmed and furious, was easily convinced. There was only one difficulty. Isabella loathed the very sight of her cousin. But this was soon surmounted, there was a wild supper-party at the palace, and in the course of it the young girl was induced to consent to anything that was asked of her. Shortly after, and on the same day, both the marriages took place. The news burst like a bomb on the English government, who saw with rage and mortification that they had been completely outmaneuvered by the crafty king. Victoria, in particular, was outraged. Not only had she been the personal recipient of Louis-Philippe's pledge, but he had won his way to her heart by presenting the Prince of Wales with a box of soldiers, and sending the Princess Royal a beautiful Parisian doll with eyes that opened and shut. And now insult was added to injury. The Queen of the French wrote her a formal letter, calmly announcing as a family event in which she was sure Victoria would be interested, the marriage of her son Montpensier, qui ajoutera à notre bonheur intérieur 
le seul vrai dans ce monde et que vous, madame, savez si bien apprécier. But the English queen had not long to wait for her revenge. Within eighteen months, the monarchy of Louis-Philippe, discredited, unpopular, and fatally weakened by the withdrawal of English support, was swept into limbo, while he and his family threw themselves as suppliant fugitives at the feet of Victoria. End of chapter 5, part 1